On April 11th of 1951, uh, President Harry Truman drafted an order and uh, sent it overseas to a guy named General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur was a five-star general, had his hands in uh, kind of all the things that were going on in Korea, and a uh, matter of fact, hadn't been stateside for years. And uh, when he received that order, uh, it sent the entire country in a little bit of a tailspin. And the reason why is because uh, he uh, was instrumental, uh, MacArthur was, in World War II, and uh, was uh, a very revered and respected general across the land. And so when MacArthur let, uh, was let go by uh, Truman, a lot of people were outraged. And years would pass, and a lot of people would say that Truman was right. Uh, but after his presidency, uh, the Times Magazine quoted him in saying uh, that the reason that he fired uh, MacArthur was this. Truman said, he said, I didn't fire MacArthur because he was dumb, although he was. And he goes, but I can't ever charge uh, a, a general with a crime for being dumb because he said I'd have to let a lot of generals go. But he said, I let MacArthur go because he did not respect the office of the President of the United States. And uh, a lot of people would say that MacArthur was a little bit pompous and a little bit arrogant and that he was very prideful in the way that he approached people. And uh, Truman said, he didn't agree with all of my policies, but the biggest deal is, he goes, I don't care if you don't like me, but he goes, when you don't respect the office of the president's presidency, he said, you can't work for me. And so that was one of those things that I think we can learn from today. And as we dive into uh, this uh, last portion of First Peter chapter 2, the very... Uh, thing that we are going to learn today is simply this, is how do we become subject to authority in our lives? Now, already, let me tell you something. Uh, many of us in here struggle with authority. Like, we struggle with authority for lots of different reasons. There's some of us in here uh, that we don't like authority from from elders, that we don't like when they ask us to do something, and so we have a problem there. There are some of us in here that we don't like authority uh, from a woman. We don't want a woman speaking into our lives. There's some in here that you say, I don't want authority from a man. There's lots of different places, I think, if we look at our lives and really deep-seated in our lives, that we may struggle with authority depending on where it comes from in our lives. But Peter is going to address this, and he's going to address it head on in a way that I think is very practical for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. And uh, we ended last week's message with verse 11 and 12, but we're going to start with them today. And so just encourage you to, to go ahead and dive in as we, we look at this idea of authority in our lives. In verse 11, Peter writes, and he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you'll look down in verse 15, look at the word that Peter says to, to him in there as well. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so Peter is writing to a group of, of people, Jewish believers, who have been, in a sense, running for their lives in exile. They are hiding in caves and catacombs. They're literally beginning to see the gospel expand in the province of Rome because of persecution. 
And so persecution is causing people to run for their lives, but as they run for their lives, what are they taking with them? The gospel. And so they're taking the truth of God to people all around them, and God is using what men intended for evil to use for good. It's the picture of what you would see Joseph and his brothers as they sold him into slavery. God would use that that situation meant for evil, and he would bring about good for an entire land. And so that's how Christianity began to really spread, is through the persecution of the Romans and through other people. And so here it is. got Nero, who is saying uh, false things about the Christians. They're being persecuted. But then you start thinking about it. As Peter writes, he goes, and as you're persecuted, I want you to live noble lives. Like the way that you're going to silence people is by the way you live your lives. Have you ever thought about that? But I also want you to think about it from this standpoint. Not just, you know, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men by the way you live your lives, but think about why Peter is writing to them. And if you think about it, he has a pretty good point. Those of us in here that would call ourselves Christians are a part of what the New Testament would say was the way. The way, which is a movement, or as we see in Acts chapter 28, Paul is going to hear it called a sect. There's a sect of people that that promote themselves as being the way. Now think about how egotistical that sounds to, to the world. I have come across divine truth in which I now know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. And every single person in this room that would say that I'm a Christ follower would actually agree with this. So think about it. You would say and have no problem saying that John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is essentially saying, if you want eternal life with the Father, then you have to believe in me. Matter of fact, in verse 2 of John chapter 14, Jesus says, put your trust in God, put it also in me. Now, he is saying that in order for you to have eternal life with God, there's only one way. And the way is not to be good. The way is not to have a pantheon of gods. The, The only way to, what, have eternal life is to leave all the gods of your life to leave your own desires, your own fleshly passions, and to pursue the one who can save you and give you truth, the divine truth that's only, what, accomplished through one person, and that's through a sovereign act of grace, through death on the cross, through a a person named Jesus. Now, you look at it and you go, yeah, I agree with that. But think about to the outside world. You're essentially saying that the way you worship is wrong. The way that you do things and sing songs and all these gods that you worship, all the incense you burn is wrong. And what do they hear? They hear a bunch of egotistical people who would say that they have wrapped up divine truth and that no one else has access to it except through one person, and that's Jesus. And every one of us in here would go, yeah, that's pretty much it. Now think about it from the perspective of those who don't have divine truth, but are continue to worship the way that they've been taught. You're essentially saying that I'm doing it right and you're doing it wrong. Now, do you see a little bit of the tension that's created here in this chapter? But even now, the tension that's being created even across our nation, really as we see it. And for most of us, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have thought that some of the the head uh, clashing that we're now seeing in the culture would have been possible. But the reason that it's happening is because there are a handful of people in our culture who claim to know divine truth and claim to have something wrapped up that no one else has apart from Jesus, and that's salvation. And we're claiming that it's a divine gift from God and his sovereign grace to men to set us free. 
And we go, yes, Lord, thank you. And we sing about that and we celebrate that and we gather all across the nation and quite frankly, all across the world in the name of Jesus, the one and only for times like this. And there are others who don't. And so Paul says, listen, if you want Jesus to be promoted, you need to understand that he's not promoted best, mainly just because you have access to him through his death and burial and resurrection. But you also promote him in the way that you live your lives. As you claim to have divine truth and salvation set apart by God for men as a free gift, you need to know that the way that you speak highly of Jesus is the way that you live your lives and quite frankly, the way that you sub subject yourself to authority in your lives. And then Peter's gonna make it very practical for us. He's gonna say there are a handful of areas that you could submit as a Christ follower to authority in your lives. And he goes, number one, you can do it through government. And so here in verse 13, we're gonna get to in just a second, he's gonna say, be subject to the government and to authority in your lives. Now, here's the deal. For all of us Texans, we go, Oh, no, not government. We're not going to talk about government and church. I mean, I love this church because it's a separation of church and state. And let me explain something to you. I don't think Christians could utter a more foolish phrase than I love the fact that the church is separate from the state. And I'll show you why in a minute that I think it's foolishness when we claim such things. Now, I will say that I do pray that God would give me gracious and kind words today, and I pray that he would give me lots of wisdom. Because I never, as a pastor, want to, in a sense, put for you a standard, a model, and one person that you should vote for. But I always want to give you godly principles that we should be looking for in individuals. That we should be electing individuals that I believe, in a sense, promote God and his purposes. And so we'll talk about that in just a second. But one thing that we have to address, because Peter addresses it, is the government. The second thing is we have to be subject to people in our workplace. In this context, we're going to see it as slavery, and I'll identify that here in a few moments. And then the last thing that he's going to talk about, which is in First uh, Peter chapter 3, which we'll address next week, is the home and marriage and family. So today, we're going to look at those two things. We're going to look at authority in our lives as it comes to government and the workplace. I think two places that many of us in this room, we say, I love Jesus, but I hate my workplace. I love Jesus, but man, I wish our government was different. And there are two things that I think God really wants us to teach us through that, and that is our subjection to him and how we honor God in our subjection in the workplace and in government, but also to understand that God has placed those things in our lives. And so let's look at it. Look at verse 13. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. Now, that word right there, subject, is a word that you're going to see in the Greek three times. And it's the word hupotasso, which literally means to come under one's authority. It's to subject yourself. You're going to see it in verse 13. You're going to see it in verse 18. And you're going to see it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And here's why. He's going to remind you every time he talks about a new category to subject yourself to this. And so in verse 13, he's going to say, subject yourself to the government. Verse 18, he's going to say, subject yourself in the workplace. Verse 1 of chapter 3, he's going to say, subject yourself in the family. And so he's saying, come under the authority. And here's the question is, why? Will we come under the authority of the government for the government's sake? Do we come under the authority of the workplace for our boss's sake? Do we come under the, the authority of our husband or our wife or the gospel and our marriage and our family for others' sake? No, he goes, do it for the Lord's sake. It really is an awesome picture of, I think, Ephesians 5, when it talks about a husband uh, and a wife, but it says, wives, subject yourself to your husband as fitting to the Lord. Like, he says, look, 
honor your husband, respect your husband and his authority. And then it says, as fitting to the Lord. Like the reason we subject ourselves, ladies, to your husband in your marriage is not because your husband is supreme. It's not because he is, should be egotistical and in some way he should cause you to serve under him, but it's because you love the Lord and you want to bring respect. That's the idea here. So you come under the authority of what? Every human institution, verse 13, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, meaning God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He goes, we we honor the government because it's for the Lord's sake. So meaning the way that you look at government has a lot to do with your own belief in God. Now, you've never really thought about that, have you? I mean, think about it. You see it as there's a separation between church and state. And so I want to go to worship and I want the, I want the government to stay out of it. And, and that's really the principle of government and state. I mean, the only reason that you have a separation of government and state is not because the church shouldn't speak into government. It's so that government shouldn't speak into the church. Think about that for just a second. The, the separation is not about what you think it is. Oh, it's the government being able to take away your nonprofit status. That's foolishness. The reason that you and I should speak in the government is because God allows us to do that. The reason the government shouldn't speak into us is because government is there for a reason. I'll show it to you in just a minute. So look at it. Here it is. It says, now submit yourself to every human institution, whether it be as emperor, as supreme, or what? To the government sent by God. So he goes, there are levels, right, of public office. Uh, like for us, you got the president of the United States. We would go, that's the highest office in the land. But then even then, we have, we have lots of different, uh, we have uh, government officials that are elected. We have state officials elected. We have local officials that are elected. All of these different people that God allows them to be in a position of authority, some in which God places there by his authority, and others that he allows us to place there by our vote. But either way, God says they are there, and, and they are in an office, and we should respect that even if we don't necessarily agree with everything they do. And I think in this setting, in this room, we would have a mixture of opinions. Matter of fact, we could probably have a pretty solid knockout, dragout debate overall on what we think about our president and about that office and about whether or not he's upholding the standards that we think the office should be, whatever it is. But here's the deal. He is in that office and he is to be respected because of what? The office. And I think that's what Harry Truman was trying to help this arrogant guy named MacArthur see, is that, yes, I understand all that you've done in war. I understand all that you've given up for your country, and we're grateful for that, but there's still an office and authority in which you should what? Surrender to, to some degree. Now, we're going to talk about that. Is, is there ever a time for us to usurp the authority of the government? And maybe there is, but the question is, how do we do it? And so that's key and crucial. And so I hope you guys are, are ready for this. This is pretty good stuff, uh, but I also want you to understand too that there, are, there could be a lot of tension on that. Because as a matter of fact, when you think government and church, you're like, oh no, oh no, let me leave to, right now, okay? And so if we see you slip out in the back door, we've already got ushers there to keep you in, okay? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, okay? And so here it is. It's to govern sent by God to punish those who do evil and praise those who do God now, uh, do good. So think about this. He's not writing to us in our context. He's writing to a context of Jewish believers who are being persecuted by government to some degree. Now think about this. You're running for your life because of your belief to have divine truth. You're saying, I'm a part of the way. 
you are a part of something that in Acts chapter 28, Paul hears from a group of men. He says, we have heard nothing ill of you, but we do want to hear what your views are in regard to the sect that you're a part of because we've not heard much good about it. So all of these people who are part of the way are creating quite a stir and commotion among the region. And there are people who are looking to them and saying, they claim to have divine truth. We don't like them. Yet they couldn't say anything about their character, but they could suppress them by the form of government. And so that's what their, their goal was to do. And what Peter is writing to them is saying, listen, even though you may be suppressed by government, you need to do all that you can to be subject to that authority. I mean, think about that. The very people who are criticizing, even trying to, in some ways, convince others that you're the problem, Peter is saying you ought to honor them and their authority. Now, that's a very tough thing to swallow. Like, even now, like, we don't like government, so to say, because we don't agree with the person and some of their policies. But in this context, government was something that a lot of the Jews, as zealots for God, wanted to overthrow. And Peter is saying, no, our goal is not to come with our Winchesters and overthrow the government. For all of us Texans in here, our goal is not to secede and go, you know what, let's create our own government. Our goal is not to say, hey, you get too far up in my business, I have the right to bear arms. Like, it's not, hey, Texas is the best. Like, and that's really where we struggle in the church. Like, think about it. I mean, it's probably going to be today. And if you see this today, just, like, just take a picture of it and email it to me, or you can hashtag it or whatever. Just, you know, find me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. But if you see this old country guy and he says, I love God and the rebel flag, okay, and I hate anybody who you know, claims to be against those. Like, we probably have missed the principle that Peter's talking about. Do you understand? But it seems to be the one thing we love around here. I love God and country. And if you're against either of those two, I hate you. But that's not what he's trying to promote. What he's saying is, is that people aren't always going to be for you and f- for the divine truth that you claim to have. But the way that you handle those things speaks not just of you and your character, but it speaks to the God that you claim to sing about. It speaks to the God that you claim to worship. And so if you're not careful, you get caught up in the windstorm of Facebook and debating your friends from lots of different circles about what government is and is not. But let me explain something to you. Government is not a man-made institution. It's a God-made institution. And that's why it shouldn't be separated. Matter of fact, like we love the fact that somebody would say God is a God of mercy and a God of justice. And see, God has always displayed mercy and justice throughout the entire Bible. Think about it. In the Old Testament, the Jews would have a, a, a clan of the Levites. They were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in that, that, that tribe of Levites, they had the priestly tribe. That was them. And they had priests. And then they would also have one every year that was the high priest. And the high priest would go in and he would go into the most holy place, a 15 by 15 chamber. And he would go in there and he would sacrifice to God. And that sacrifice would be a pleasing aroma, and he would take it, the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God, which was on the Ark of the Covenant. There were two cherubim that looked over it. And if God was well-pleased with the sacrifice and with the heart of the, uh, the high priest, the one who walked in on behalf of the people of Israel, God would allow another goat or lamb to be set free. And God would find that the people were worthy of forgiveness for one year, and then they would do it again the next year. But perhaps, let's say that the, the, the man who walked in wasn't clean and he wasn't noble and the sacrifice wasn't pure and it wasn't adorned as lovely. I mean, guess what? That guy would drop. 
Why? Because he would meet the justice of God. So think about that. Has God stopped displaying himself as a just God? And the answer is no. Think about this. He reveals his mercy through you and me as the church. And he reveals his what? Punishment and his justice through government. The reason that you have government is exactly what you have right here. As an institution by God to do what? Well, look at it. Verse 14, these, these institutions, whether it be as supreme to the, the, to the emperor or to governors sent by God, it's there to punish those who do evil and to praise those who got, do good. So listen, do you understand that, that the ministers of the gospel aren't just, you know, just your pastors? You know another minister of the gospel? They don't know it, okay? But you should be praying for them or your police officers and your sheriffs. Why? Because we need them. We need them to promote good in our society, and we need them to what? Punish those who don't do good. And that's the role of government, Romans 13. And so there's a lot of questions that I don't have time to answer. Should Christians ever be for uh, corporal punishment? For, should, should we ever be for war? Well, listen, we should be about promoting peace, but we also need to know that there's an institution that God has appointed called government who has a right to protect the people from wrong. And we should support that institution and come subject under it. That's what he's talking about. Verse 15 goes on to say, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In a sense, he goes, if you want to promote the gospel, you want to defend Jesus, then do it by your conduct. You shouldn't have to say a word. People ought to be able to see how you live your lives. That's the example. Then verse 16 says, Now live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It's the same picture that you would see in 1 John chapter 1. I love those scriptures. And then verse 6, it says, If we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses from all sin. So in a sense, he goes, Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So he's going, if you claim to love God and to live in God, then don't go and do whatever you want and go, you know what? I love God and he's going to forgive me. He goes, that's not promoting the gospel. Can you think about how contrary that is to the gospel? Hey, I'm going to go do all the things that I wanted to do. That's oftentimes the confusion in our society as well, right? It's because you and I have people in our lives that you go, I love God. I love our country. And then what do they do? They kick back with a 30-pack, and then they run naked at 2 in the morning with all their buddies. And they're like, I love Jesus. And then you see them stumble into the 11.30 because 8.30 is too early. And, <laughs> and well, you're confused just a touch, right? And the reason why is because you go, you've got all these mantras in your life. You love God. You love your country. But your conduct is confusing. And that's all Peter is saying. He goes, look, your conduct is not just about godly living and about order in your life, but your conduct is also subject to authority in your life, even in the government, even in the way that you respond to others and love. Got that? Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple to acknowledge, pretty difficult sometimes to live by. Then he goes on to verse 17. And he goes, now honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Two things that are especially easy for the Christian and two things that are especially difficult. Why? Well, here's what we love. We love fear God and we love the brotherhood. We love going to, to church, singing songs about the God that we fear, and we love hugging each other's necks while we drink coffee. But when it comes to honoring everyone, I have a, I have a hard time honoring people that I disagree with. 
I have a hard time honoring the government officials that I don't necessarily like their policies. I have a really difficult time honoring my neighbor when they promote a lifestyle that I'm not okay with it. I have a really difficult time honoring the emperor or the office of that emperor. Why? Especially for Christians who are literally being wrongly accused, in some cases killed, in front of the masses. And Peter goes, look, don't just hold fast to fearing God and to loving the brotherhood, but honor everyone and honor the emperor. He goes, regardless of the authority that's in your life, you may not agree with their policies. You may not agree with the way they do the things that they say. You may not agree with a lot of it, but you'll do well to honor God by what? Coming under their authority. Now, let me ask you this question. Can you have a bad government? Yes. And, and as, as bad as you think our government is, our government has not oppressed us to the degree that many governments do. You're, you're, you're not dealing with some of the things that you're seeing happening right now to the oppression of other communist states. And so for us, we have it very easy, even though we still disagree. But let me ask you this question. What, what if you're them? What if you, in this case, are a Peter? What if you were some of these Jewish believers? What if you were in Nazi Germany? What if you're a Dietrich Bonhoeffer? What, what do you do? Like, do you just say, you know what, God, I love you, and I'm just going to let them roll right over the top of me? Is there ever a place where you buck the system? Is there ever a point in which you say, you know, the government cannot establish my, my morals? Is there ever a point where you say, you know what, I can't come up under that authority, whether it be in the government or, as we're going to talk about here in a minute, the workplace? And I think the answer is yes. But I want you to understand and hear this. The answer is never a double-barrel Winchester. It's not. It's never that. It's, it's never, and we're going to see Christ's example here in a little while, but what is it? I think it's the example that you're going to see in multiple different places. I mean, think about Acts chapter 5. You have Peter who is encouraged not to preach anymore, and he says, look, you can tell me not to preach, but God's given me a command to preach, and so I'm going to preach. Think about Daniel chapter 3. You, you have Nebuchadnezzar, and he builds this incredibly huge 90-foot statue, and he says, when you hear the trumpet sound, everybody should bow down to it. And then you got the famous guys that all of our kids learn about, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, and they said, we're not going to bow down. And it doesn't matter what you do to us, we're not going to bow down. Then you've got the classic case in Daniel chapter 6 when King Darius, uh, the Persian king, comes into office after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and, and they go to him and they say, hey, oh, king, wouldn't it be awesome if we made a decree and you're the only name that people pray to or bow down to? And he goes, oh, wow, I think that'd be great. And then you've got old Daniel, and Daniel goes, I'm not bowing down to any man. And so he went, just as he always does, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, he threw open the gates, or, uh, the windows of his home, and he prayed three times a day, just as he had been accustomed to doing. What do they do? They arrest him, they throw him into a den of lions. But Daniel says, I'm, I'm not going to bow down to the government authority in this case. But he didn't speak maliciously. He, he was very kind of the way he did it, and he trusted God for something. It's the classic case of Esther. In Esther chapter 4, verse 16, she was not to approach the king, her husband. Why? Because women didn't do that. But then, as Mordecai said, you're the only one. Maybe God has put you in this time, in this place, for this moment. She says, I will go before the king. And she usurps the authority of the culture and says, if I perish, I perish. Think about uh, Matthew chapter 2. You remember the wise men? The wise men were approached by Herod. They said, hey, I'm looking for the same uh, one that you are, this, this uh, Messiah. And, and so if you find him, report back to me because I would like to meet him too. Did the wise men find Jesus? Yes. Did they report back to Herod? No. And so is there a time that, that maybe we usurp the authority? And the answer is, yeah, because we do have a role. 
And there is a role in government. And so what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. We respect the office, even when we don't agree. Like you, you don't necessarily like the office, or maybe you don't like the person in the office. Listen, we either put them there or we didn't. So we either voted and we, we weren't a, a part of the, the, uh, the 51% that got them in there, or maybe we didn't vote. We stayed home and we just complained. Bottom line is this, if you want a hand in government, then here's how it happens. You put good, godly people in office. And when good, godly people aren't in office, you respect the office and you respect the person. And we do that best by kind words and good conduct. Why? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Not for their sake, for the Lord's sake. It does well for us as Christians to support the office and the authority that's in our lives. Wow, that's tough, isn't it? And then look at this, verse 18. Now servants, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, here, real quickly, okay, I got a question. I need 100% audience participation for this poll, okay? Here we go. Have you ever had a boss that you did not like? Raise your hand. Okay, if you work at Stone Point, you keep your hands down. You got me? <laughs> Okay, so like every single one of us has pretty much had a bad boss. Now, if you haven't had a bad boss, don't worry. Your good boss will get hired away by another company and you'll have a bad boss soon, okay? <laughs> He's coming. But here's what it says in verse 18. Just as you should subject yourself to the government authority, verse 18 says, now you should subject yourself with respect to those who, what? Are your masters. Now, in this context, two-thirds, or I'm sorry, a third of the society was in slavery. So a third of them, whether it was they were born into it, maybe it was a, a, a trade of some sort. For some of them, it was a good thing. For others, they were oppressed. For most cases, it was not slavery in the ways that you and I know it that created a lot of tension in 1860s in the Civil War period. It was not a, a William Wilberforce abolitionist movement there. What it was is men and women who may have owed a debt and they subjected themselves to pay off a debt. It could have been something that was pretty well respected. Now, occasionally you had people who were oppressed and who were dealt with harshly, but for the most part, it wasn't slavery like you and I think slavery. Now, listen, Slavery in the way that you and I think slavery, Paul spoke harshly against it, and we should too. We should not ever, ever be a part of something where any person, regardless of ethnicity, color, anything, is somehow suppressed because it goes against the very thing that God calls us to in what? Psalm 139. We are all created in the image of God. And so that's not what we're speaking of in this area. We're talking more of a workplace picture. And so think of it in your context as workplace, although it doesn't all apply. So it says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And the word unjust is the word here, listen, in the Greek, that's scolios. It's the, it's the word that you and I get a crooked spine from. What? Scoliosis. And the word literally means this. There's going to be some who are good and just, and you love them, but what happens when you get a crooked man? What happens when you get a woman who will do whatever it takes to promote the business and they encourage you to do practices that are beneficial to the company but not beneficial to your faith? What do you do? Well, in this context, you couldn't leave. In this context, you were kind of bound to this family. You were bound to this group of people, and so you had to stay. And it was good for you if you would respect God for the Lord's sake, even though you disagreed with men. In your case, if you were working under a crooked man who's harsh, ungodly, and has 
practices that are not good and holy and pleasing to the Lord, then you should leave. Or you should stay quiet. That's pretty tough, isn't it? You're like, I'm, I, I, I got to have the paycheck. No, you, you got to decide. Am I going to work for crooked men who are scoliastic? Out of, they're, they're not straight and narrow? Or are you going to leave? And so he would say, hey, look, you, you bring great respect to God by honoring those who are just, also unjust. And then verse 19 says, for this is a gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one who endures sorrows while suffering, unjustly. It's the idea of James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because trials develop in us perseverance. And so, if you have you ever thought about this? Like, God, even though I don't like my workplace, would you help me to be salt and light in the workplace, even though I'm miserable for your purposes? God, would it not be about me? And even though I seem to be enduring some suffering and it's it's sorrowful every Monday. I cry the night before because I'm so miserable. God, would you give me the strength to persevere even though I don't like my job? Would you, would you great honor? And then more than that, God, would you use this trial in my life as an opportunity to grow my faith and develop my steadfastness towards you? Think about that. You've never asked that in your workplace. Your, your, your prayer is, is, God, would you please get me out of this place right now? And you're like, you're printing business cards. I mean, they're in there. Like, I see them. Like, oh, man, I didn't know they were looking for a new job. I mean, it's at the lumber yards, the dairy queen, right? And you're like, get me out of here. But what if you, it was like, God, I'm, I'm dealing with a crooked man, a crooked boss, a crooked woman. I don't enjoy it. But God, if I stay here, would you help me to honor you with, with my tongue, with my decisions, with my actions? And then would you give me the perseverance to stay strong? Would you grow me in the midst of this challenging situation? That's what he's talking about. You see that? In, in government and in the authority in the workplace, he goes, God, would you give me the perseverance as believers to stay steadfast and strong? Then verse 20, it says, for what credit is it when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? He goes, it's natural. Think about it. In government or in the workplace, if you do wrong, you should be punished. Agreed? Like, that's the way it should work. If you do wrong, you should be punished. But what happens in the latter part of verse 20, but if you do good and you suffer for it, then, then you endure. Why? Because that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's a divine, supernatural act. When you do no wrong and you're accused for it, that right there is divine. Why? Because when you handle it right, you are an imitation and a picture of one who came before you. And then Peter, he closes it with that. He goes, listen, if you do wrong in the workplace, quit griping because your boss keeps getting on to you. When you show up late every day, when you're lazy, when you're slothful, when you don't do what you were asked to do, you should get reprimanded. You should lose your job. But when you're faithful and there's no one who can say anything malicious about you, but you will not bow down to malicious practices or things that are crooked, and you suffer, then you suffer in the sight of the Lord, and, and it's, it's a good thing. God says, I'll take care of it. Matter of fact, then you get this picture of verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leave you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It is the picture of Philippians 2, that you and I, that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, that we would shine as lights in the universe. Understand? Like even in our darkness, whether it be in the workplace or in the government or in society, you and I are the ones who put to shame the foolish of ignorant men. 
Why? By the way we live our lives. You and I can be a light in dark places. And he goes, and you do well to do that because you imitate the one who is the greatest light the world has ever seen. Yes? I love that fact that Corey Ten Boone's sister, even though they were in the midst of Nazi, Nazi persecution and she would die in the middle of it, her sister Becky said, there is no pit that God is not still deeper. There is no pit in which God is not still deeper still. So, and so look at verse 22. It, he goes, let me give you a picture of the one who sustains you. And it says, there was one who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Who is that? Jesus. You can write the word right there, innocent. Jesus was innocent. But look at his response and his innocence. Think about it. If you're in the workplace and somebody says, somebody stole the paper and the pens around here, and I think it was you, what do you do? No, 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 it wasn't me. Matter of fact, it was John over here. Let me tell you about John. John didn't just take your pen, but listen, John's been leaving early and he's been asking me to check out for him. And what do we do? We naturally go, whoa, whoa, if you're going to accuse me, no, let me tell you who's really doing it. And then what do we do? We'll say everything that truly is happening, but to boast ourselves and to make us look better. Won't we do that? Yes, we'll do that. And he goes, look, there, it's a commendable thing that when there is no deceit in your mouth and you're innocent, that your response is like that of Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? Look at it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. There was self-control. That's where a lot of us miss it. We're doing right, and maybe you're accused of unjust things. But when we're accused of unjust things, listen to me, we lose self-control. I see it in my house all the time. I did not do it, Dad. And what do they do? The fingers go point, right? And they didn't do it. I'm like, I know you didn't do it, but it's your response. Your response is what, is what makes you even more guilty. Like I'm waiting for a self-controlled response. And that, I think, is where many of us as Christians, we miss it. We may not be doing wrong, but then we respond in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. And so Jesus, he goes, Peter says, Jesus did not revile in return. He suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Now think about this. Have you entrusted yourself to the one who judges justly? Now, I want you to understand that the church is a picture of mercy, and we don't always get it right, do we? You ever been a part of a church that didn't seem merciful? Think about the government. Government is there to punish people who do wrong and promote good in the land. And the government doesn't always get it right. But Peter says, listen, there is one who will get it right in the end. And it says something for the believer if we'll entrust ourselves to the greatest care of the one who judges justice uh, judiciously and justly. It will do us well if we'll, we'll give ourselves to the one who will reward us on that final day. Do you understand? So last week or last night I did a wedding and it was a, a couple of, that was recon, uh, reconciled after a divorce and now they're remarrying. They went through our regeneration ministry and she stood there in her white dress. I said, listen, the thing that I want to encourage you to, and, and I said, Whitney, I want you to, to be encouraged to do this. As you are here in this white dress, I want you to know that God's calling you as the bride of Christ and for all of us here that are listening to live a pure life, lovely and adorned 
for his purposes. We should be pure. We should be respectful. We should honor people. And I said, Whitney, it starts in honoring your husband, but it goes out from there. And I'm thinking that's what the church is about. Why? Because we honor those in authority. And when those in authority get it wrong, guess what? God will get it right. Have you thought about that? Like what a comforting thing. God, it seems like this person was accused and they were found guilty, although they were innocent. And has our government done that? Yes. But God says, I'll, I'll take care of that in the end. And he will judge judiciously, fairly, and he'll get it right. And then verse 24 says, says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And you could underline that. The reason that Christ died is so that you and I would be dead to sin and that we would live in his righteousness. And we live in his righteousness by the way that we handle the things in our life. And then it says, by his wounds you have been healed. And listen, that is not in a physical sense, has nothing to do with your back pain, has nothing to do with the headache that you have that can be dismissed in Jesus' name. It has everything to do that by his stripes you have been healed and it is a spiritual declaration and here's what he's saying. If you, don't miss, if, you, if you have somehow missed this, maybe in church theology and the way that you've been raised, I want you to make it very clear for you. Peter just says, you are going to suffer in this life. You will suffer at the hands of unjust men. Some will be your bosses. You will suffer at the hands of oppressors in government who, what, take the office that's supposed to be a picture of God's, what, justice, and they will corrupt it. But even though you suffer in this life, you need to know there is one who is divine and you will not suffer in the next life. Why? Because Christ has made a way in which you will have spiritual healing for all of eternity. It is Revelation 21 revealed. For the old order of things has passed away and new things have come. There is no more, what, crying or mourning or pain. There is no more tears. That is not the reality of the day we live in. Do you understand? For every single one of us in this room, there will be more pain. There will be more suffering. There will be more enduring. There will be more hardship. We will bury more loved ones that we love. We will have more pain and calamity. We will get phone calls that we never wanted to hear. We will be accused unjustly. There will be people who will talk maliciously about your church. They're going to talk about your family. They're going to talk about your husband. They're going to say things about your daughter, some that are not true. And you're going to suffer. And the way you handle them speaks mightily, not just about you and your character, but about God. But God says, I'll make it right in the end, and there will be one day that you never have to worry about that anymore because Christ has healed all our pain. But it's not realized until we stand in his presence for all of eternity. Amen? So we should long for that day. We should long for the appearing of Christ and his return. And so, verse 25, so for, for a while you were straying like sheep, you've now returned the shepherd, the overseer of your soul. Christ is sufficient in our moments of weakness. We should depend on him, find strength in him. And we should reveal to the world that we should shine like stars in the universe, even though we live in a day that's dark. Even though we don't like government, we should see that God has used that institution. If you don't like something in it, vote a different way. If you don't like your workplace, leave it or change it. You, you remember the guy, Bob Cratchit? At Thanksgiving dinner, 
Christmas dinner. He's, he's over the turkey, and all he has to do is what? God bless our family. God bless, what did he say? Oh, Scrooge. And his wife, oh, you shouldn't be praying for him. You shouldn't be praying for him. Oh, dear. And he puts her in her place. And he said, we should be praying for him. He's what puts food on our table. And though he wasn't paid right, and it was unjust punishment for what he was enduring, he saw what? An opportunity to glorify God. And he didn't just do it in the workplace, but he did it in his own home. And listen, you think about how many times we roast the authority in our lives. And it doesn't just go government. It doesn't just go workplace. It goes church place. And we expect God to, to be honored, and, and he's not. And so we need to be making sure that we're mindful of the things we say and do. Amen? So let me pray for us. God, we love you, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather in this place. I pray, Lord, that...